Do turn with me to Third John, please. And we read all of this little book together, as we will do each night. Verse 1. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper, and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou dost faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. But he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name. Amen. Now, Third John is unique in the canon of Scripture, as it is the shortest book in the New Testament. It is just one line shorter than the second epistle of John, that is in the original Greek language. Yet perhaps no other book in the New Testament paints for us a more vivid picture of first century early church life than Third John does. It's as if we're a fly on the wall witnessing some of the circumstances going on in this very early church. Now it's very similar to Second John. Second John's key words were love and truth. And we find that the same key words are in 3 John. But there is a significant difference midst all the similarities between 2nd and 3rd John. And it's simply this. You will remember that 2nd John was addressed to an elect lady. John was writing to her warning that she should not admit false teachers into her home, which effectively was admitting them into the church fellowship. And so she was warned. She was given a critique whereby she might know whether a teacher was true or false. Now, 3 John is like a mirror image of 2 John in that 
It's opposite in the sense that John is writing to a man called Gaius. And Gaius is being commended for the very fact that he has admitted teachers into the church of Jesus Christ where he resided. And rather than a prohibition given by the apostle to Gaius, there is in fact a commendation and a warning that he should never refuse admittance to those who are the true teachers and preachers in the church. And so if you like, these two epistles give us the two sides of love. In Second John we have the firmness of love. That love does not open its doors to everything and every thought. There has to be a protectiveness towards the church in love, towards the sheep that the wolves do not get in and devour. And yet in Third John we have this tenderness of love. That those who are truly in Christ, those who are in the fellowship of the gospel, ought to be given admittance and hospitality among the people of God. Now, as we've read this book together and as we will study it, that is Third John, we'll find ourselves, I think, saying, well, times haven't changed much in 2,000 years or so. We still have the same problems and we still have the same types of people in the assembly I want you to imagine the scene, which is the backdrop to 3 John. It's probably a house church located some distance from John's primary ministry, hence he has to write a letter. And this little church is in the same theological struggle as the church that John wrote to in 1 John and 2 John. Now we know by inference that John once wrote to this church already. But an influential man within the assembly, probably a leader, an elder, who had taken a primary position among other elders by the name of Diotrephes, rejected John's letter entirely. Verse 9 shows us this. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Now, after Diotrephes refused this first letter from John, the apostles sent emissaries to the church. But again, Diotrephes stepped forward and refused them admittance, refused even to acknowledge them as children of God and servants of God. Verse 10 shows us this. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, and prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. In fact, we know from verse 9 that Diotrephes even repudiated John the great apostle publicly. He spread rumors, verse 10, also in fairs concerning the apostle's character. In fact, Diotrephes forcefully stopped anyone who was sympathetic to the Apostle John and his brethren. Anyone who gave fellowship and communion to them within the assembly. They were under the threat of excommunication. In effect, what he was saying was, anyone who sides with these men coming from the Apostle John can get out of the church 
just as I have thrown them out of the church. But there was one in the assembly, a courageous man, a gracious man, who accepted these missionaries as their host into his home, and his name was Gaius. Of course, he, he obviously knew Diotrephes. He knew the type of the man that he was. He knew the venomous threats that he was making to any who accepted John or his friends. And yet, he was not intimidated by him. We could say he feared God rather than men. And he helped these missionaries. He cared for them. He helped them on their way, even financially. And when the news returned to the Apostle John, first of all of Diotrephes' rebellion, and also secondly of Gaius' faithfulness, John then penned this short letter, his third epistle. And in it, he commends Gaius. Eventually, he's going to visit the church, he tells us in his closing remarks, verse 13 and 14. And I just think perhaps that he wants an ally when he comes in Gaius so that he can face Diotrephes with someone in the church who is of the same mind and the same heart as the apostle. Let me just say that there's an interesting lesson there, I think, for leaders and elders within the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we spend so much time struggling with the problem people in the assembly that we forget to commend and encourage the faithful. The fact of the matter is, John didn't make that mistake. The first thing he does in this epistle is to commend Gaius for his faithfulness and he is not a fool because he knows that through his encouragement he is making an investment for when he comes to face Diotrephes he will have the moral support of this faithful one Gaius. Now Gaius is one of four characters that we will face in 3 John. Gaius is the man I've entitled this study tonight who helped God's work. He is a hospitable character, a friend to the workers in the gospel. He is a spiritual man. Next week, in the will of the Lord, we will encounter Diotrephes, the man who hindered God's work, self-seeking, unloving, self-promoting and proud. And then, God willing, in her final study, we will face Demetrius. He is the man who is honored in God's work, set forth as a commendable example to all children of God in his faithful service to the Lord. And we believe he is the man who took this letter to this particular church. But if there's a message in this little epistle, it's this. And it's one we often hear reiterated in all sorts of circles today, and it's, where there are people, there are problems. The church is not exempt. It never has been. Sometimes we hear ministry that we need to get back to the practices of the early church. And I would agree with that in one sense. But you know, the early church had as many problems, maybe more, than we do today. There were people in the church. And they were problem people. But the question we need to ask tonight as we seek to perhaps fit ourselves into the character, caricature of whether we are a Gaius or a Diotrephes or Demetrius is, am I a person who is a problem? Am I part of the problem 
Or am I part of the solution to the problem? So let us embark upon this epistle with that question on our minds personally. Am I part of a problem? Or am I part of the solution? Now this little epistle begins, as all epistles, with a salutation. And we know it's from John the Elder again. And if you want to know why, we believe that that is John the Apostle, the last surviving apostle who was with the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. I would encourage you to get our introduction to the second epistle. I'm not going to go over that old ground regarding the authorship. This epistle is addressed clearly to this man, Gaius. Now, there are several Gaiuses named in the New Testament. There's Gaius of Macedonia, who together with Aristarchus was seized by the rioting mob at Ephesus. We read of him in Acts 19. Then there was another Gaius who accompanied Paul the Apostle on his last trip to Jerusalem. He formed part of the group of delegates that presented the offering from the Gentile churches to the church in Judea. We read of him in Acts chapter 20. And then there is Gaius, another, of Corinth in whose house we believe Paul the Apostle lived while he was dictating the epistle to the Romans. You can read about that in Romans 16.23. Now the big question is, is this guy is the same guy? And the answer is, we don't know. And there's no way of knowing. Gaius, we're led to believe, is probably the most popular name in the whole of the Roman Empire. It's a bit like James or John today. So we can never be sure who this man is. But the fact of the matter is, even if we don't know anything more about Gaius than what we know in the third epistle of John, we learn a great deal about his character in these verses alone. We learn, first of all, that he was a well-beloved believer in the church and of John. You see that right away. Well-beloved Gaius, verse 1. And he is well-beloved, we shall see, because... His whole life commended him to these fellow believers. His whole life was a witness to the love, the grace, and the life of God in Jesus Christ. And love and truth are not the only key words in this epistle. Another is the word witness. It's found in verse 3. It's expressed in the word testified. Then in verse 6, we have the word report. And in verse 12, we have the word bear record and record. And right away, we are impressed by the fact that this man Gaius, Gaius, the man who helped God's work, was a tremendous witness and testimony to love and to truth, these two great themes in John's epistle. And the emphasis, I believe, is... That whilst John has been concentrating on a great amount of doctrinal material regarding Christology and the doctrine concerning the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he wants us to grasp this truth, that the fight against falsehood is not fought alone by our words. But the fight against falsehood must be fought on the battleground of our lives. To others, in our world, truth is not essential. Some believe, and you've heard them say it, so long as the deeds that you do are good and you do them, that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what you believe. And then there are others, and they only believe that 
It's important to believe what's right. And after that, it doesn't really matter what you do or how you do it. And John right away is obliterating both of those fallacies and showing us that truth and life must be always married together. They are inseparables. Every Christian life must be a witness of the truth. Truth is not some just objective thing that is intangible. But truth must be enshrined within the life. And every Christian, like Gaius, is a witness. The big question is whether you're a good one or a bad one. Whether, like Gaius, you're helping the truth or you're hindering the truth. Gaius was a man, as we see from verse 8, who helped it. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Is that not what the Lord Jesus Christ uh, spoke of in all of his ministry here on the earth? The case in point is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father which is in heaven. The whole point of our residing here on earth as, as children of God is for witness, for record, for testimony of love and truth. Now, we need to ask the question of this man, guys. What kind of characteristics do we find in a man who is walking in truth? We've been talking about this already in Second John, but now we're given personification, an example of a man who is walking in truth. And what are the salient characteristics that we see in this man? Here's the first thing that I want you to notice. He was spiritually healthy. Spiritually healthy. Verse 2, John says, and we're still in salutation, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Now, it's customary in first century letters to begin them with a prayer. And John is keeping to the custom, but he's Christianizing it in a sense. And what John is saying here is he wishes that Gaius' physical health would correspond to his spiritual vigor, his spiritual health. He says that he might prosper in all things. That is his physical well-being, not as the health and wealth prosperity gospel movement teaches us that you should be a millionaire and never be sick. Rather, he clarifies it for us and says that you may prosper and be in health. John is saying, I long that your health would mirror your spiritual wealth. I was just thinking as I was studying this today, it's just as well John wasn't praying this prayer for many of us. <laughs> for if the Lord granted it, some of you would be dead. Some of you would be up in hospital. Most of us, I'm sure, would have an ailment of one thing or another. And I wonder if we were to be asked the question, would we like our physical condition to correspond to our spiritual condition, how we would answer for the sad fact of the matter is we often take better care of our physical well-being, our bodies, than we do of our souls. And not just ask the ladies the question, how long did it take you getting ready for the meeting tonight? Looking at some of you, it didn't take too long, mind you. But <laughs> And then ask the question, how long did it take you talking to the Lord this morning? 
How long will it take you talking to him this evening? It's a lesson, isn't it? And just as an aside on this point, uh, this flatly contradicts what is often taught by so-called faith healers. And let me say I believe that God can heal. I'm not one of these people that believes that God's healing is finished today. But many so-called faith healers believe and teach that all sickness is as a result of specific sin in your life. And then if they try to heal you and you're not healed, they tell you, well, you have a lack of faith. That's why God hasn't worked in this regard. Now, Gaius's example flatly denies this because here's a man whose spiritual condition was exemplary whilst his physical condition was abysmal. It doesn't follow. We must never make the mistake as Christians to assume that a person's illness or physical condition reflects something that is sinful in their life. Now, sometimes it does. First Corinthians 11 tells us that, that many were weak and sickly among them because of their sin, getting drunk and feeding themselves around the Lord's table. It was a judgment from God. But let me remind you, only God was able to make that call. Only God could diagnose that that was the reason for their illness, and you certainly can't do it, nor can I. But note also that at the same time, the Apostle John in this salutation is expressing a prayer that Gaius would be well. And we ought to pray that folk should be well. And I think this is the lesson that John's trying to bring to us here. The Christian ought to be concerned with the whole person. God is concerned with the whole person. God has redeemed us body, soul, and spirit. God will resurrect us one day, bring us into the eternal state, body, soul, and spirit. And remember now the backdrop theologically to these epistles. John has already told us that it is the deceiver and the antichrist who claims that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh because they believe all flesh is wrong. Dualism, the material, physical word, is evil, only spiritual, is good and pure. John says no. And that's why he was praying for Gaius in his physical condition. But here's his point. Spiritual health will manifest itself in good symptoms. And the good symptom of spiritual health is witness for Jesus Christ. Verse 3. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. He said the same thing of those in the elect lady's house and Verse 4 of 2nd epistle. I rejoice greatly that I find thy children walking in the truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Now it's tremendous to be a Christian and have the truth in you. But what John is saying is it's better to manifest that truth in our lives. To exhibit it. To be a testimony, a witness, a record of truth. We should be people that don't just hold the truth, whether it's the Bible in our hand or doctrine in our head or even in our heart, but we should be a people by whom the truth is held and who are held by the truth. Someone as well said, men would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. Now I know some of you might watch or might have watched that program, You Are What You Eat. And I confess to you, I've never ever seen it before, but I've heard a little bit, bit about it. But of course, that's a saying that's gone around for years. Dietitians tell us that 
Uh, if you eat too much garlic, you'll smell of it, and uh, it comes out of your pores. I don't know if you eat steak, you become like a steak, I'm not sure, or eat chicken, you become a chicken. But nevertheless, there is an element that when we digest our food, it becomes assimilated into our system. When we drink water, it becomes blood. And it's the same in our spiritual lives. If we are to be strong spiritually, if we're to be a witness, if we're to manifest the power of God and energy in a spiritual sense to others, we need to digest spiritual things. And digestion in the spiritual life is meditation. Meditation on God's word and God's truth. Not just reading it, not just studying it, but inwardly digesting it is what digestion is to the physical life. It's not enough to hear God's word. You need to hear it. It's not enough to read it. You need to read it. It's not enough to study it. You need to study it. But you need to meditate upon it. To digest it. So much so that Paul could say, though the outward man perish, the inward man can be renewed day by day if you meditate upon God's word. Meditation, digestion, makes God's word part of the inner man. That's what Gaius was. He was a walking Bible. D.L. Moody would have called him uh, the truth translated into shoe leather. William MacDonald, the commentator, said very profoundly, there's nothing that counts more for God in an age of fact, and I think what he means by that is a rationalistic age. Nothing counts for more in this age than a holy life. Gaius is what I would call a glass house Christian. Transparent. What you see is what you get. He's the real thing. And it's important to John that he knows that about Gaius. We believe perhaps he, he led him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he could say in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. No greater joy. Have you ever heard it said by an evangelist or a preacher? Maybe I've even said it myself. There's nothing like leading a soul to Christ. There's no greater joy in this earth than pointing a soul to the Savior. But you know, there's no greater heartache than to have pointed someone to the Lord Jesus Christ and then see them return after profession of faith to their former life and go back to, to the, the mire like a pig and wallow in the dirt or go back like a dog to its own vomit. The greatest thrill is not pointing a person to Christ. The greatest thrill and joy is to lead a person to Jesus and then see them going on with the Lord. That was John's joy. That's why we need to emphasize follow-up in our evangelism. Not just getting people saved, but discipling them and getting them mature in the fear. And here's a man, Gaius, who is spiritually healthy. Are you, my friend? That is a person who's walking in the truth. That is the person who's a witness. But the second thing that we see about him is not only was spiritually healthy, but he was openly hospitable. Now, I think I've told you already that in these days, the ministry in the local church was an itinerant ministry, and pastors and evangelists and uh, teachers and preachers would travel round and 
visit the churches and stay in the homes of the believers. And preachers weren't wealthy and uh, they couldn't afford to stay in inns and they wouldn't have wanted to because of the debauchery that was going on in inns of that day. And so the believers, the saints of God, put them up. And here is a man who exemplifies hospitality in the early church. It was a delight to him, a special privilege to throw open his doors, the doors of his home, to preachers and teachers of the gospel. It's tremendous when we see this. In verse 5, not only did he, he open his home to the brethren, it says, but to strangers. And some versions put it like this, and especially to strangers. He was openly hospitable. I'm not so sure if you're familiar with this, but the New Testament presents hospitality as a very important ministry in God's sight. Elders, the Bible teaches that bishops are to be hospitable. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. In Romans 12 we read that if a widow is hospitable to others, she is to be honored by the church. Do we practice this today? In 1 Peter 4 and verse 9, we read that we are to offer hospitality without grumbling, without murmuring. The writer to the Hebrew exhorts us uh, to be hospitable because some have entertained angels unawares. They have unwittingly entertained angels because they have flung open their doors to strangers. New Testament is full of the exhortation to hospitality. But let me show you the primary reason why we ought to be hospitable as Christians. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. Matthew, chapter 25. And there is a judgment here being described, but the principle refers to many things. Verse 40, Matthew 25. And the king shall answer and say unto them, on that day, verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What does that mean? It means this, that when you engage in open hospitality to brethren and servants of Christ, you care for them as if you were caring for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And on the other hand, failure to care for the Lord's servants is looked upon as failure to care for the Lord himself. In verse 45 of the same chapter, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. There is a blessing from the Lord when you are openly hospitable, because you're not just ministering to the servants of Christ, and to the brethren in Christ that you have, you're ministering to the Lord himself. Now turn with me to another portion, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, where we have an actual illustration of this fact, literally. Luke 24, the two on the road to Emmaus, after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection, unknown to them, and they are uh, despondent, desolate, thinking all hope is gone. In verse 29, we read that after the Lord Jesus appeared to them, not knowing who he was, 
And after he began at Moses and all the prophets expounding unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, they constrained him, verse 29, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. They were hospitable. They opened their home unwittingly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. What a wonderful story. Opening their home in hospitality and opening their home unwittingly to the Lord himself. And William MacDonald says this of that very instance. Many can testify that through the practice of hospitality, meals have been turned into sacraments. Children have been converted and families have been drawn closer to the Lord. Do you practice hospitality? Elders, do you practice it? Deacons, do you practice it? Members, do you practice it? I'll have to be honest. Sometimes we're in an awful predicament when we visit, uh, invite visiting preachers over to the province because we haven't got anybody but one or two to put them up. And those one or two are overburdened continually because the rest aren't willing. That's hospitality. Do you do it? Not only do you do it, do you see a blessing in it? W.A. Creswell is arguably one of the greatest Southern Baptist preachers that uh, this generation has known. He's now deceased recently. And he tells the story that it was actually through his parents' ministry of hospitality that he was converted. When he was 10 years of age, a preacher came to their church to hold evangelistic crusade. And his mother, Anna Cresswell, invited him to make his lodgings with them during the two-week stay. And the young W.A. Cresswell was greatly impressed by this uh, visiting evangelist by the name of John Hicks. And when he was out for a walk, little W.A. would go and walk alongside him. When he was going to church, he would go to church with him. He would return home. With him. When he was in the home during their meals, the boy would pull up a chair close to the preacher and listen to the adult conversation over the meal. And Mr. Hicks stopped and took time with the little boy. He talked about his thoughts with him. He asked him questions. He, 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 he asked about his aspirations for the future, what he would do when he was older. And by the time Mr. Hicks left the town, W.A. Criswell had received Jesus Christ. As a saviour and lord. Don't underestimate hospitality. There is a Danish proverb that says. When there is room in the heart. There is room in the house. Hospitality isn't just putting a meal down to someone. It isn't just inviting someone back for supper. Hospitality is opening your heart. To others. And when your heart is open to them, your home is open and everything is open. 
Even when we are hospitable, do we open our hearts to others? Someone has said hospitality is the art of making people feel at home when you wish that they were at home. I heard about a man today who took his dog to the vet and asked him to cut off his tail completely. And the vet says, well, I'm not sure I can do that. Why on earth would you ever want to do that to your dog? Well, said uh, the dog owner, my mother-in-law is coming to visit us and I don't want anything in the house to suggest that she's welcome. (laughs) That's often the way our hospitality is, isn't it? It's tongue-in-cheek. We do it reluctantly. It's not with an open heart. Gaius not only opened his home, he opened his heart. And you know something? When you open your heart, like Gaius, you'll open your hand. You see, he was not just spiritually healthy and openly hospitable, but we find out about this man, he was evangelically generous. Evangelically generous. Look at verse 6. You have borne witness of thy... These brethren, I beg your pardon, have borne witness of thy charity before the church. Whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Charity, love. He was generous to all the church, all these ministers, all these brethren, these evangelists, these preachers and teachers who came, even strangers. He didn't know some of them. He knew they were the Lord's. That's what mattered. But how generous he was. And it was reported right throughout the whole church as a testimony to the love of Christ. And because of that, please don't miss this, his name, Gaius, is ever enshrined in holy writ because he not only had an open home, an open heart, but he had an open hand. He was evangelically generous. And John not only commends him, but he encourages him to continue in the same. And he says, send them forward on their journey. Verse 6. Now, what that literally means is assist them on their journey. Not just a friendly goodbye. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. But I'm not giving anything to you. No. It was material supplies to assist them on their way. Those who were engaging in this itinerant gospel ministry. Now that could have included many things. As we go through the New Testament, we see those things. It could have been money. It could have been food. It could have been anything like washing their clothes and mending their clothing. But the whole point of it was this. That Christian love in Gaius was exemplified practically. Gaius was the man who helped God's work. All faith, we're told in the scriptures, must be proved by works. That is not Catholicism. That is Christianity. Turn with me for a moment to the epistle of James. Chapter 2. Verse 14 to 16. James 2, 14 to 16. What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked 
and destitute of daily food. And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Friends, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Have you ever read that verse where it says the Good Samaritan then took out a tract and put it in his top pocket, the man who was lying bleeding by the side of the road? You don't read that. You don't read that he took it as an opportunity to share the gospel to him. Now, I'm not saying that we should never do that. But the whole point is this. Let us not minimize the whole teaching. Many people take allegorical interpretations that, that would blow your mind out of the Good Samaritan and miss the whole point. He was showing love. Christ-like, unconditional love to a man that was in need. And our love must be expressed in deeds, God's word says. Not just in words. Look to John's first epistle. If I need to remind you of what he said in chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed, and in truth. Is that the way we love? Lord Shaftesbury was a great reformer in a political and a religious sense. And there was a couple who were due to meet him, at the station, but they had never met him before. And they inquired of a friend of his, look, we don't know what he looks like. How will we recognize him? And this friend of Lord Shaftesbury says, well, when you see a tall man getting off the train and helping somebody, that'll be Lord Shaftesbury. Sure enough, they went down to the station and the big tall man alighted from a coach, carrying in one hand a suitcase and in the other three bundles of a little old working ladies' luggage. John gives us the reason why he encouraged Gaius to help these missionary itinerants on their way. There are four. The first is it honors God. He encouraged them to help them on their journey after a godly sort. Now that literally means in a way that is worthy of God. A way that befits God. Someone has said, we are never more God-like than when we are sacrificing to serve others. But also because, verse 7 tells us, that these missionaries were doing this work for the name's sake. That's why they went forth. That means, as we've said from Matthew 25... That if you minister to them, you need to realize that they're doing this for God. And if you minister to them, you're ministering to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. For they're doing it for his name's sake. That name in whom there is salvation and in no other name. That name which is above every name. That name to which every knee shall bow and tongue confess. And incidentally, this little epistle is the only book in the New Testament that doesn't specifically mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't matter. This is a synonym for it the name they went forth for the name of Jesus that's why it honors God to honor them the second reason is it is a testimony to the lost 
You have to remember that many of these false teachers and preachers were wandering around churches and houses begging money to share their ideas. If the price is right, I'll tell you what God told me. Do you find that around today? I think we do. My skin crawls at times at some of these meetings that are ticketed with charges of 10 and 15 pounds, even in conservative evangelicalism, to hear special preachers. Is that of God? I think not. You see, it's a testimony to the lost when believers support the work of God so that we are not going around with a hat asking them to give. And it prevents this perception that the evangelist of the gospel is after money. Jesus said, freely you have received, therefore freely give. To do anything else might even create in the mind of an unsaved person a false ground of self-righteousness on which to rest. Because I've given to the gospel ministry in some way I'm in tech with God. And right away, whatever book this is, we see to the money-raising methods in Christendom today. God's people should finance the work of the gospel and God's people alone. They took nothing of the pagans. Let us not put temptation in anyone's way to go to the world and let us support God's work. Gaius did it. It honors God. It's a testimony to the lost. Thirdly, it is obedience to God's word. We therefore ought to receive such. Verse 8. We ought to receive such. We ought. Why? Because God has taught us to. The ministry of hospitality and support of God's work is a command of God. It's obligatory to God's people. Turn with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. And often we miss the context of this portion of scripture. Galatians 6. Verse 6. Let him that is taught in the word, those who are recipients of the teaching of the word, communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall reap of the flesh corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall reap of the Spirit life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, that is, giving to the work of God. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. It makes it clear that believers in the church who receive spiritual blessings from those who minister in God's word ought to share with the, those who minister those material blessings. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And it further explains this principle for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 7. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Or who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the, 
the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that plieth should ply in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap, reap of you carnal things? It is obedience to God's word to help the gospel on its way as Gaius did. It honors God. It is a testimony to the lost. It is obedience to God's word. And fourthly, it accelerates world evangelization. This is a beautiful phrase that John uses in verse 8. Turn back with me to 3 John. He calls John, uh, Gaius a fellow helper, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. It could be translated joint workers in the truth. Now please note this. And I don't know what your gifts are here tonight. The Bible would teach us that we all have spiritual gifts. But most of us are not preachers. Most of us are not public speakers. Most of us are not involved in a so-called full-time ministry, whether as a pastor, a preacher, a missionary, an evangelist, or a teacher, whatever it may be. And Gaius may not have been someone who had gift in public ministry. But nevertheless, John says that he is a fellow helper in the truth. He is defending, contending for the truth, and by his liberality, his evangelical generosity, he is extending God's truth through the world. That excites me. It should excite you. The Baptist missionary, the pioneer to India, William Carey, who went to India in 1793, spent the rest of his life there until he died in 1834. Despite many of the difficulties he faced, Carey was humble enough to appreciate that there were those at home who were praying. There were those who were giving sacrificially to the work on the field. And you know what he called them? Rope holders. There they were at home, holding the rope. And this was the imagery that he used. As they were holding the rope, he was venturing down what he described as the gold mine of India. Gathering jewels. For Jesus' crime. You may or may not be on the front line of the battle, so to speak. But isn't it wonderful that all of us can share in the work of God if we support those who are on the front line? There's no indication that Gaius was a preacher or a teacher. And this is a wonderful point for you to remember, dear child of God, if you're the same oak. Gaius will receive reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Here's a verse for you if you're a fellow helper in the gospel. It's Matthew 10 and verse 41. It's a verse that could be applied to those who give to the gospel. It could be a verse applied to those who are married to those that are in the gospel ministry. It could be a verse to those out in the mission field that are helping others in a practical ministry. Matthew 10, 41. Listen to it. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive 
a prophet's reward. I think that's marvelous. Gaius will receive the reward of all the preachers he ever entertained. Whatever blessings come from a preacher's ministry, those who have cared for him, those who have helped him, those who have speeded him on his way will have his reward credited to their account. Philippians 4, 16 to 17 says, For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Paul was speaking of financial aid to his work. And this is what he goes on to say. You sent it and I, I perhaps needed it and, and there was maybe a request because I des- not because I desire a gift no 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 but I desire fruit that may abound to your account he knew they would be rewarded can I ask you what reward will you have at the judgment seat for your spiritual health For your open hospitality, for your evangelical generosity, do you have an open home, an open heart, an open hand? Are you a Gaius, the man or the woman who helped God's work? The lesson is God one day will pay back every good deed. Let me finish with this poem that encapsulates the spirit of the message. We cannot all be heroes and thrill the hemisphere with some great daring venture, some deed that mocks at fear. But we can fill a lifetime with kindly acts and true. There's always hope or always noble service for noble hearts to do. We cannot all be preachers and sway with voice and pen as strong winds sway the forest, the mind and hearts of men. But we can be evangels to souls within our reach. There's always love's own gospel for loving hearts to preach. We cannot all be martyrs and win a deathless name by some divine baptism some ministry of flame. But we can live for truth's sake, can do for Christ and dare. There's always faithful witness for faithful hearts to bear. Come back next week and we look at Diotrephes, the man who hindered God's work. Father, help us all, we pray to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who laid his life down and gave it a ransom for us all. Even so, may we lay our lives down for the brethren and for the furtherance of thy kingdom. Lord, may we all be fellow helpers in the work of this gospel. Let us be a help to the testimony of Jesus. God forbid that any should be a hindrance. Amen.